Alright, let's talk creation myths. First off, I realized that there was a lot of reading, and a lot of reading from all over the place for this particular lecture. Um, but we don't have a whole heck of a lot of time to talk about the non-Greek myths in this class, and I did want to give you a taste of sort of comparative mythology, reading myths in the context of the world at large. Um, and I hope that as you were reading all of these, that you did see some major similarities as well as some major differences between the Greek text of the Theogony, as we've run into um, before, as we read last week, um, as well as, you know, between one another, given how many texts we were actually reading for today. Um, but just to clarify for the folks at home and for anyone who stumbles across this lecture and is not in my class, because it's all online, um, the text that we read to for today were numerous. We started with the Babylonian epic, the Enuma Elish. We went on to the um, Theogony of Danu, that little bitty text where everybody was killing each other. Um, we read a chunk of the Hymn to Life from the Egyptian coffin texts. Um, we read Genesis 1 and the very beginning of Genesis 2 um, from the Old Testament. We read a chunk of Plato's Timaeus. We read the Phoenician cosmogony, the, the history, or the Phoenician history of Phylon of Byblos, or at least a chunk of it. Um, and then a little bit of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Um, and that's, that's quite a lot. Like, not denying that, you know, having some six or seven different texts that we were reading, like a page or two from each, um, is a bit overwhelming. Um, but as it is, like, I feel like we didn't do it justice. Like, I, I want us to read more. I feel like I cut off the Enuma Elish too quickly, and I feel like, you know, I didn't give you enough um, of the Metamorphoses or some of the other works. But again, the plan here is to do exposure. Um, so I hope that you did not take a giant pile of notes on every single one of these, because if you are trying to track the genealogies in each case, you will just be frustrated and you really don't need to know them for uh, the rest of the class. The main thing that I want you to focus on, the main thing that I will be focusing on during this lecture, is the similarities and the differences and what that says about each of the cultures involved. Um, that's the key here. This is an exercise, in a manner of speaking. You do not have to know, like, the specific order of the murderous deities in the Theogony of Danu. Like, we are not going to try and draw a distinction between Phlox God number one and Phlox God number two. Um, nor will you need to know it for the midterm. Again, the key here is we want a broad overview and we want to see how to do this comparative thing. Uh, mythology, um, how to look at these myths and sort of glean the important details um, about each culture from what they are saying and how they talk about it. So let's start with perhaps the earliest of these texts, although it may not be the earliest of these texts. It's very ambiguous. All of these are very, very ancient. Uh, but we will start with the Babylonian epic, the Enuma Elish. Um, this is perhaps the most famous of the texts that we are dealing with today, um, with the possible exception of the Timaeus and the Metamorphoses and obviously Genesis 1, since that's a big deal. Um, but the Babylonian Enuma Elish is sort of this foundational theogenic text. Um, we sort of acknowledge that this is probably as early a theogonic tradition as we are likely to find. Um, or at least, you know, it derives from an early the theogenic tradition. Um, 
again, a lot of these texts are ambiguous as far as how old they are. Not just insofar as, like, we don't know how old this particular version of the story is, but we don't know how old the story that it is derived from is. Um, like I said with Hesiod's Theogony, it's an old book, like, written probably in the 7th or 8th century BCE, but it probably derives from a tradition that's at least 100, 200 years older. Um, and I want to sort of stress that. Because you'll notice that there are a lot of similarities between the Enuma Elish and Hesiod's Theogony. Um, specifically, like, the way that the universe works is very similar. Um, as in the Theogony, where it is the succession of gods that are, like, killing each other and going to war with each other in order to sort of establish the governing order of the universe, so we see here the same thing. Um, but the sort of motivation is rather different. Like what I stressed with the Theogony, or Hesiod's Theogony, um, was the sexual component. Like all of the gods have sex with each other, and that's how you get kids, and that's how you get little gods, and that's how you get other gods, and that's how you get monsters, and that's how you get all sorts of things. Um, but that's not as much how it works here. Most of the gods that we are running into in the Enuma Elish are sort of just there without any real explanation um the main source of most of the gods if there is one or if there's one cited is tiamat um and you should definitely be thinking when you read about tiamat uh, that she has a lot of similarities with gaia the earth in hesiod's theogony um she like gaia is married to the sky apsu um she, like Gaia, gives birth to tons and tons of stuff over the course of this story. Um, Gaia gives birth to the, you know, line of gods, the Titans first, and then the, like, the main line gods after that, as well as, like, innumerable monsters and critters of all sorts. Um, Tiamat does the same thing. But notice the emphasis that the Enuma Elish places on Gaia, rather than or that the Enuma Elish places on Tiamat rather than the way that the Hesiod sort of glosses over Gaia's role. Like, Gaia is important in the Theogony, but she becomes less important with every successive generation. By contrast, you'll notice that the generations happen in the Enuma Elish with relatively little, like, actual reference to Gaia, like, there's not necessarily this direct order of succession, like, Uranus gave birth to Kronos, Kronos castrated Uranus, Kronos gave birth to Zeus, Zeus defeated Kronos. Um, instead, it's more ambiguous. First, you've got Tiamat and Apsu, and then they make tons of gods together. Um, they are, again, born to Tiamat, so once again, we have this sort of, like, fundamental sexual relationship between most of these characters. But, again, it's not that clear, because some of these gods just seem to come out of the woodwork. Um, but the important thing is there is already strife between Apsu and Tiamat over their offspring, much like we saw with Gaia and Uranus. Um, so you'll remember when Gaia and Uranus have their kids... They give birth to the Titans, who are gorgeous, and everybody likes them, even though Cronus is crooked-minded. Then they give birth to the Cyclopes, and Uranus thinks they're ugly, so he locks them up in Tartarus. And then they give birth to the KGB, the hundred-handed dudes, and Uranus definitely doesn't like them, so he locks them up. Um, and this is what causes Gaia to oppose Uranus and betray him. But instead here, we have, like, all the gods apparently are making noise, like, they are the worst neighbors ever, so they're just making a lot of noise and dancing around and making clamor. 
Um, and this really stirs up both Tiamat and Apsu, but Tiamat is kind of forgiving. Um, she indulges them. Apsu, however, is like, ugh, I cannot handle all of these kids making all of this noise all the time. I am going to totally off them. Which, you know, is just what you would expect a loving father to do. Um, but once again, like Gaia, Tiamat gets upset. Um, uh, the relationship is very similar in that sense. Tiamat and Gaia to Apsu and Uranus. Um, but Gaia doesn't necessarily act in this case. So notice on page 8 it says, When Tiamat heard this, she was furious and shouted at her lover. She shouted dreadfully and was beside herself with rage, but then suppressed the evil in her belly. How could we allow what we ourselves created to perish? Even though their ways are so grievous, we should bear it patiently. Um, so then we have Mumu, the vizier, counsels Apsu, father put an end to their troublesome ways so that she may be allowed to rest by day and sleep at night. Mumu betrays Gaia, not or Mumu betrays Tiamat, not Tiamat um, Apsu. Importantly, when ultimately things start moving, when Apsu is betrayed, it isn't by Tiamat, it's by Ea, his son. So this is, you know, very, rather different from the way that Hesiod presents it. Um, Gaia or Tiamat is not involved in the actual plot against her husband. Tiamat is a victim here in a very real way. Um, she is not backstabbing or betraying. Instead, she is just sort of a bystander. She's trying to make peace with all of the factions involved, the noisy second generation of gods, as well as Apsu, um, her husband. But Ea, Ea does not wait. Ea knows that he is in danger. He hears about this um, from Mumu. Um, as a result, he assassinates Apsu and Mumu, and now he declares himself king. Um, so instead of Gaia betraying Uranus or Tiamat betraying Apsu, it's Cronus slash Ea just acting on his own. Um, now, this is where things get a little confusing because Ea like kills Apsu, but he also names his chambers Apsu. So we're going to keep hearing about Apsu, but it's like... Now Apsu is his room and not a person. Yeah, a lot of these old texts, it's really ambiguous exactly why the symbolism or the names change the way that they do or change meanings the way that they do. It's very unclear. Um, but you'll notice that Aeon Damkina, his lover, they're hanging out in Apsu, the room, not the god. They have more gods, including Marduk. He will be important later. Um, but for now, things are quiet. The trouble is, Tiamat finds out about this. Obviously, her husband is now dead. Um, so Tiamat gets upset. But notice the relationship. When Gaia gets upset, it is an act of betrayal. She is fighting against her husband, um, admittedly on behalf of her children. Tiamat is in exactly the reversed position. Her children have attacked and killed her husband, and she responds to them out of loyalty for her husband. So, one, like Gaia, she is enraged. She is upset. She produces a bunch of monsters to fight them, just like um, Gaia produces Typhon uh, to oppose Zeus and the New Order in, the Hes in Hesiod's Theogony. Um, Tiamat produces all of her various monsters, which we get like repeated over and over and over again. 
We see it for the first time on, at the bottom of page 9. She stationed a horned serpent, a mushushu dragon, and a lamu hero, hero, and an ugolo demon, a rabid dog, and a scorpion man, aggressive umu demons, a fish man, and a bull man bearing merciless weapons, fearless in battle. Um, her orders were so powerful they could not be disobeyed. In addition, she created eleven more likewise. Over the gods, her offspring, who had convened a council for her, she promoted Kingu and made him greatest among, among them, conferred upon him leadership of the army, command of the assembly, raising the weapon to signal engagement, mustering combat troops, overall command of the whole battle force. So now... Tiamat basically raises her own army to oppose Ea and the new line of gods that have betrayed Apsu. Um, so this is very different from the way that the, uh, Homer present, or Hesiod presents his theogony. Um, in a sense, Tiamat is sympathetic here. And in fact, the text spends as much time talking about Tiamat and her new army as it does talking about, you know, Ea and Marduk and the, the whole sort of, like, effort of the, quote, noble gods to fight this. Um, unlike the Greeks, who see women as being, like, betrayers, treacherous, antagonists, basically nothing but trouble, um, Tiamat is presented as though she may be on the right in, in this. Like, she will lose, and the gods will rule ju justly, according to the Babylonian tradition. Um, but it does not change the fact that Tiamat herself is working with a noble cause and has a just grievance against her children here. Um, now, part of this might also be traditional. Like, the reason why it's repeated over and over and over again, the horned serpent, the mushushu dragon... Um, all of these like elements are repeated over and over and over again. There definitely seems to be some sort of traditional uh, reason for this. Like the repetition itself is part of the myth and part of the religion and part of the ritual. Much like you know I talked about uh, last week with you know the the Greeks banging on their shields in Crete to sort of repeatedly drown out uh, Zeus's cries from Kronos. Um, and there's definitely an element like where the, the this was this was typically practiced during the Babylonian New Year festival. Um, this was a sort of acknowledgement and ushering in of the new growing year in April or May. Um, and you'll notice, like like the Greeks, they are enacting the myth by retelling it. Um, my guess is they would probably also reenact it in some sense. At the very least, what we do know is that later on in the myth, in the section that we didn't read, when Marduk is being praised by the writer of the myth, and like all of his various names are enunciated, um, this for sure was repeated. Um, it is almost certain that the Babylonians would have had like a ceremony where all of Marduk's successful glorious names would have been repeated over and over and over again to sort of reaffirm his authority and thus reaffirm his uh governance over the over the universe and guarantee like a good harvest and that the seasons would continue as planned um but that's getting ahead of ourselves um what i want to stress here are actually the villains uh kingu especially because you'll notice that Kingu gets a lot of attention in this text for what is basically like the secondary James Bond villain uh, after Tiamat. Um, 
every time that we repeat the litany of Tiamat's monsters that she's raised up against the gods, there is always emphasis on Kingu and his primacy of place. And in fact, that's what changes in the multiple times that we get the list of recitations. So, you know, here we have Kingu is made greatest among them. He was conferred leadership of the army, command of the assembly, so on and so forth. In Tablet 2, we see Kingu made him greatest among them, conferred upon leadership, command of the assembly, um, and set her upon a throne. Um, later in Tablet 3, we get the whole thing again. Command of the assembly, raising the weapon to signal engagement, rise up for combat, overall command of the whole battle force, and she set him upon a throne. And then in Tablet 4, we do in fact get, like, the biggest difference there. Um, we find out that King Hu, King Hu has been given the Tablet of Destinies, um, whatever that means. Um, and when he is beaten by Marduk, when Marduk kills Tiamat and kills King Hu and overthrows this whole giant army, um, Marduk also takes for himself the Tablet of Destinies. Um, which apparently is this really important detail um, because it is emphasized rather significantly in Tablet 4. But notice also how Marduk comes to power. Um, so Tiamat has raised up all of these armies in Tablet 1 and then it's repeated in Tablet 2. Um, she announces that, you know, the that they are going to be greatest um, and that everything is going to be important. She gives King Wu the Tablet of Destinies in Tablet, in, in tablet 2. Um, and then it says at the very bottom of page 10, when King Wu was promoted and had received the Anu power and had decreed destinies for the gods her sons, he said, what issues forth from your mouths shall quench fire? Your accumulated venom shall paralyze the powerful. Notice it says that King Wu is promoted, receives the Anu power, and decreed destinies for the gods her sons. Apparently having the Tablet of Destinies means that King Wu gets to govern their fates, which is pretty hardcore, and also a huge advantage. Like, if Tiamat gets to literally decide how her children die, how their fates will play out, then, like, there's no chance. Tiamat is unbeatable at this point, at least in theory. But she is, in fact, beaten here. Um, notice how this continues. We get Anshar reporting to Ea that, like, they're screwed. Whoa, he cries and bit his lip. His liver was inflamed. His belly would not rest. My son, you who started the fight, you remain responsible for what you have done. You went and slew Apsu and Tiamat, whom you enraged. Where else is an opponent for her? Um... Despairing of advice, the prince of good sense, this is Ea, creator of divine wisdom, Nudimund, with soothing speech, words of appeasement. He answered Anshar, his father, nicely, Father, you are the unfathomable fixer of fates. The power to create and to destroy is yours. O Anshar, you are the unfathomable, unfathomable fixer of fates. The power to create and destroy is yours. For the moment, stay quiet at the words I shall tell you. Bear in mind what a good thing I did. Before I slew Apsu, who else could he look to? Now there are these monsters. Before I can rush up and extinguish him, King Wu, he will have surely destroyed me. Then what? Now, notice that there is a sort of conflict here. Anshar is supposed to be the one who fixes fates, but now King Wu, since he has the Tablet of Destinies, is apparently doing the same. This implies that fate, at least at this moment, isn't fixed. There is a conflict here. Um, the Tablet of Destinies doesn't belong to Tiamat and Kingu, and therefore it isn't appropriate, like it isn't actually as fixed as they think. That said, 
Everyone acknowledges that Ea is going to get his butt kicked if he tries to fight Tiamat. Anshu acknowledges this. Ea later will acknowledge this when he's, like, spying on Tiamat. Um, Ea can't win this fight. So as a result, he steps down, which is very unlike what we see in Hesiod and the Theogony. Like, the reigns of that of the universe have been passed from Apsu, king of the universe, to Ea when Ea slew Apsu. But now Ea gives them up willingly because he knows that he's not going to win the fight against Tiamat. Um, he gives them up to Marduk. And Marduk is apparently the only one who is strong enough to fight Tiamat and win. Um, so they have this question, like, Ea is like, all right, I'm definitely not going to be able to do this fight, I am totally going to get my butt kicked, who will stand up and fight Tiamat, and after some fairly long pauses, Marduk stands up and says that he will. Marduk the hero. Um, and Marduk will be the king of the gods at the end of this whole encounter, like, we did not read much farther than this. Um, now, when it in fact goes down, like, Marduk and Tiamat finally face off. This is on page 16, um, very top of the page. Face to face they came, Tiamat and Marduk, sage of the gods. They engaged in combat, they closed for battle. The lord spread his net and made it encircle her. To her face he dispatched the Imbulu wind, which had been behind. Tiamat opened her mouth to swallow it, and he forced in the Imbulu wind so that she could not close her lips. Fierce winds distended her belly. Her insides were constipated, and she stretched her mouth wide. He shot an arrow which pierced her belly, split her down the middle, and slit her heart, vanquished her, and extinguished her life. He threw down her corpse and stood on top of her. Notice that the control of the wind is what gives Marduk the edge here. Um, in Tablet 4 and Tablet 3, the main weapon that is given to Marduk now that he is like taken over for the rest of the gods is the wind. Um, as master of wind, Marduk is master of the universe in a very real sense. Um, now immediately after he defeats Tiamat, he also defeats Kingu. He like catches Kingu in a net and then he kills Kingu apparently wrests from him the Tablet of Destinies, which didn't belong to Kingu in the first place, and then he takes the Tablet of Destinies and presses it to his own breast. Uh, he takes the Tablet of Destinies, and now Marduk will govern destiny with the help of his father, Anshar. Um, but notice the emphasis here. Um, Marduk is the rightful ruler. He defeats Tiamat and kills her, despite the fact that, again, the text has sort of been very sympathetic to Tiamat, way more than Hesiod was ever sympathetic to Gaia. Um, but Marduk defeats Tiamat using the wind and using this Tablet of Destinies. This is the prize. Um, the Tablet of Destinies is how Marduk asserts who he is. Now, literally, if you keep reading, like, Tablet 5 and Tablet 6, it's basically just a giant list of names of how awesome Marduk is, and, like, Marduk celebrates his rule, and, like, everybody's really excited about how awesome Marduk is. He is basically going to operate as this, in the same role as Zeus did in Hesiod's Theogony, as being the sort of greatest of gods, great king of gods, um, and sort of arbiter of justice. But notice that like Zeus, Marduk also rules over the wind. He is a sky god. Um, this is related to his primacy of place, as different as that may be from Zeus, who we identify with thunderbolts rather than with the wind. Um, but notice too that a lot of the myths that we're reading here 
focus on the wind. Even uh, Hesiod's Theogenes spends a lot of time talking about Zeus's control of the wind. This is important. Um, it is important to all of these ancient cultures because the wind is so crucial to their livelihoods. Um, their agricultural success depends on the right winds at the right time. If a bad wind comes and brings, you know, drives away the rain or brings in some sort of poisonous vapor, which we very roughly understand at this point, it'll mean devastation to the crops. You need the winds to be on your side, bringing rain, bringing sunshine, bringing, you know, cool breezes so the crops don't bake in the ground. Um, this is really important to the to these ancient people. Likewise, you can see this in the Theogony of Danu, this emphasis on an agricultural society. Um, now, I don't want to get too deep into the various gods and stuff in the Theogony of Danu, because again, they're not super important for our purposes. But I do want to draw attention to the way that the succession works here. Um, like with the Enuma Elish, like with Hesiod's Theogony, there is a murderous succession. Um, but this one is like ramped up to the umpteenth degree. So you start off with Plow, not, er not Sky, marrying Earth. They decide that they're going to like make a universe and have kids and stuff. So they have children. Plow and Earth beget the cattle god. And then the cattle god kills Plow and marries Earth, and they have the flox god, and then the flox god kills the cattle god and marries the sea and kills the Earth as well as the flox god. And then the second flox god kills the first flox god, and then the herdsman god kills the flox god, and Harhanum kills the herdsman god, and then Hayashim uh, would overthrow Haharnum, but doesn't breaking this cycle but we have literally like six or seven straight up you know ascension murders here um every time the universe changes hands it is due to a god murdering his father marrying his mother and you know creating a new established order and you know you can definitely read an anthropological meaning into this that you start with like the earth and the furrows of the earth and the the plow god but it gives way to a society that focuses instead on cattle. Uh, we are describing an agricultural society, like a society focused primarily on growing crops, to a society that is now focused primarily on raising livestock, cattle, and then flocks. Um, you could definitely make that argument, although I'm not entirely sure if it is justified. Um, this theogony of Danu is not like the national theogony of Babylon. Um, that's the Enuma Elish. But the Theogony of Danu arguably could be even older than the Enuma Elish. We're not entirely sure. Um, it's local, like it seems to be specific to the region of Danu, um, but it is possible that it predates the Enuma Elish. Um, see, the weird thing about Babylonian society is that it was very much a hybrid society. Um, the original people who dwelt in the Babylon area of Babylon in the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia uh, were the Sumerians, but they were invaded by the Akkadians, and the Akkadians took over the place, set down roots, and basically decided to manage the show. Um, so the Babylonians, as we know them, are the product of these two cultures, the Sumerians and the Akkadians, much like we have in Greece, the sort of encroaching Aryans coming in and wrecking the place where the Mycenaeans and the native Greeks were hanging out. 
Um, in fact, most of these mythologies do come from societies that are hybrids, um, that have more than one sort of original culture residing there. Um, this was a fairly common occurrence in the ancient world. Um, but the emphasis that I want to place here, like in this particular little theogony with all of its crazy murders, is the breaking of the succession. Um, you have this very obvious pattern. Plow marries earth, then cattle kills plow marries earth, then flocks kills cattle kills earth marries sea, then flocks two kills flocks one, then herdsmen kills flocks two, and then uh, so on and so forth until Hayashim breaks the cycle. Hayashim does take over. We see in that last sentence, then Hayashim, son of Haharnam, married his own sister. At the new year, he took over his father's dominion, but did not kill him and seized him alive. He ordered his city to imprison his father. And then we lose the text. Like, it's it's gone and we cannot read it anymore. Um, P.S. This is also very common in really ancient texts, especially in Babylon. There were not a whole lot of systems in place to preserve and protect these traditions. Um, especially something as obscure as the Theogony of Danu. Um, the Enuma Elish is much better attested, but the Theogony of Danu, not so much. Um, but what I want to stress is the breaking of the cycle. Um, Hayashim taking over Haharnam's domain, but not killing Haharnam. This is the new order. Um, and this is what is going to be celebrated in all likelihood. Like, again, these myths are themselves recitations and reenactments of the old traditions. By reading them, you engage in them. There's something sacred about this. And like the Enuma Elish, and what, like the Theogony in all likelihood, um, these were connected, these myths were connected to religious traditions, in this case tied to the New Year. Um, by celebrating this succession of Danu, by celebrating the not killing of Haharnam, um, you are acknowledging the established order of the universe and basically guaranteeing that the earth will, will continue to produce crops and will continue to cycle through the seasons in the normal fashion. This is what will make spring and summer and fall happen to the ancient Babylonians. Um, now the next one I want to point to is the Egyptian text from the coffin texts. Um, these are really old in all likelihood, although we can't get a very keen date on exactly when we're, what we're dealing with here. Um, but these could, again, predate both the Enuma Elish and definitely Hesiod's Theogony. Um, but notice also the way that this one is written by contrast with the other stories that we've gone that have gone before. Both the Enuma Elish and the the Theogony of Hesiod are told from a third person perspective. They're like, all right, so this happened and then this happened and then this happened and this god killed this god and then this god got mad at this god and so on and so forth. Um, instead, this text is written to Shu, and it's written from Shu's perspective, like it is Shu talking to Shu. Um, which is kind of interesting and weird. But what I really want to stress here is what Shu actually is. Uh, like, you'll notice that Shu is the son of Atum, and Atum gets some pretty significant prominence in the Egyptian tradition. Like, there are a ton of different gods in the Egyptian pantheon. Um, we are not going to talk about, like, the tenth part of them in this class because that's really not our focus, and honestly, I'm not that knowledgeable about the Egyptian pantheon. 
Um, but what I can tell you and what I should assure you about is that Atum is one of the oldest and one of the most powerful gods. Um, Atum is sort of like big deal god in the same way that Kronos is a big deal god for Hesiod. Like, later generations of Egyptians are going to worship a sort of secondary pantheon with a lot of focus on Osiris. Um, Atum is not necessarily Osiris's father, like Osiris's origins are very ambiguous, um, but he is sort of his progenitor. He is in the mix somewhere. Um, Atum is also, at one point in the Egyptian historical records, worshipped as the one god. Um, like, he is associated with the sun, um, but he isn't necessarily exactly the sun god. Again, that changes hands from time to time in Egyptian culture. Um, but Atum is sort of like the one god who could be a monotheistic figure. Um, he doesn't necessarily have to have a whole pantheon. Atum exists apart from them. But notice that this text doesn't focus on Atum. It focuses on Shu. Um, Atum is secondary in this purposes. Like, Atum is recognized as being powerful. Um, Atum is recognized as being sort of authoritative. Atum speaks for a lot of this text, uh, especially, like, emphasizing its power and his offspring and their roles. But the significance here is that it's Shu who gives Atum life. Shu is life. Now... If you notice at the very beginning of this passage, like the second paragraph at the top of page 27, it says, I am the soul of Shu, preeminent of the great cows, who ascends the sky according to his desire, who descends to the earth when his heart wishes. Notice, once again, we have a god who is related to cows, um, like, the, like the cattle gods in the Theogony of Danu. Um, this is pretty common. Cows are known to be fertile. They are known to be productive. Cows are also sacred in ancient Greece, although we haven't run into any like particular cow gods or cow-transformed people just yet. Just wait until we get to Io and Europa, and you'll see exactly how big a role cows play um, in Greek society. But notice, the cow is life in this case. Not king of the universe, not a tomb. A tomb is the sun. Tomb is, you know, sky god in his own right, much like, you know, Apsu and Ea and Zeus. Um, but Shu, life, like fecundity, productivity, um, fertility, is a cow. But notice also the way that the gods are created in this particular myth. Unlike Hesiod's Theogony and the Enuma Elish, um, there's not really any indication of gods coming about through sex. Um, it is not a, you know, procreative act. Instead, they seem to come out of various body parts of Atum and others. So notice that fourth paragraph on page 27. Then Atum said, Tefnut is my daughter who lives and she will exist with her brother Shu. Life is his name and Mat is her name. I live with my two children and I will live with my two fledglings with me in their midst. One in my back, another in my belly. Life will rest with my daughter Ma'at, one in my interior, another around me. I will stand over them, and their arms will be around me. It is Geb, my son, who lives as I begot him from my name. He has known how to make the one who was inside the egg live in the corresponding belly, as the human beings who came out from my eye, when I sent, which I sent because I was alone with the primeval waters and inactivity. So notice, 
most of the gods and even human beings are like springing out of a tomb's person. Like human beings come out of a tomb's eye. The gods are living in his belly and in his back. A tomb has this sort of like pantheistic quality to him. Um, he is everything at the same time. Um, and notice too that a tomb stresses, I sent them because I was alone with the primeval waters in inactivity. This suggests that in that a tomb existed before any of the other gods. Like it was him alone with the primeval waters. And we will hear this echoed in the Israelite myth in Genesis 1 as well. Um, but notice too that Shu and his relationship to Atum seems kind of interdependent. Like Shu is the product of Atum. Atum stresses that like Shu is, you know, the brother of his daughter Tefnet, which means that Shu is presumably also Atum's son. But later down the page we see, I indeed am life, the son of Atum. He has begotten me from his nose, and I have come out from his nostrils. I will place myself in his neck in order that he can kiss me along with my sister Ma'at. He appears every day when he comes out from his egg and begets the god in the coming out of the sun. Praises are said to him by the ones whom he created in the horizon. I have caused my father to live because the unwearying stars are the crew of his ship, the life of the living limbs. I am life who joins the heads, who reestablishes the necks, who causes the throats to live. I join a tomb and I reestablish the head of Isis over, his, over her neck after I have joined the spine of Kepri for him, because I am the light of the ever-widening movements, who brings the sky to a tomb to the nostrils of Re every day. I go and come. I open the path of Ray when he sails to the western horizon. I am his nose, and my arms save him from Apep when he travels to the western horizon. With my air blow, I make pr prosperous the neck of the one who is in the night boat, and who is in the day boat, who came out today from the west and east of the body of Nut. Now, again, there's a lot there. And one of the things that I definitely want to stress is that, again, the universe is described as being, like, cohabitant with Atum here. Um, it is not the product of sexuality, like Atum always was and all of the stuff in the universe came out of Atum alone. Like life slash Shu himself recognizes that he was begotten from Atum's nose. Like apparently he just like sneezed Shu out, I guess, or something. Um, but notice also the way that Shu identifies himself. He is the one who establishes the neck, who lives in the nostrils of a tomb and of Ray. Um, he is the being who opens the path of Ray while he is sailing. He reestablishes necks. He is conceived in noses. The suggestion here, like throughout this text, is that Shu, life, has a lot to do with air. Like, the idea that he comes out of the nose of a tomb suggests that Shu is a tomb's breath. Um, the fact that he is the one who sort of propels Ray on his ship suggests that he is the wind. Um, this is what I want to sort of stress about Shum especially. Uh, Shu enables a tomb to kiss people. Shu enables a tomb to breathe. Shu makes a tomb more than sort of like an inert god inhabiting the heavens and living with the primordial waters, but instead gives him life. Like a tomb is apparently not alive 
until Shu is born out of a tomb's nostrils, which is weird, like, and very interesting and very unique to the Egyptians. Um, very unusual, contrasted with, like, Hesiod and his gods who all have sex with each other and then, you know, have more gods, or the gods of the Babylonians who do something very similar. Instead, this is just body parts making gods. Um, each god according to the place on the body that he springs from. So Shu is life, Shu is breath, Shu is air, Shu is wind. Much like we see in Hesiod's Theogony that whoever controls the wind gets to run the show. Or in the battle with Tiamat, the fact that Marduk, by controlling the wind, can overcome Tiamat and guarantee the succession of gods going forward. Breath, wind, is life. Um, and this, you gotta look at the Israelite myth as well. So let's look at Genesis 1, because this one's obviously hugely important perhaps one of the most important myths of all those that we are going to study um not least because you've likely heard it before and have likely you know had to talk about it before um this one's a big deal but let's look at it in the context of these other myths that we are talking about especially homer especially um the enuma elish especially this egyptian text that we just looked at um, so let's just jump right into Genesis 1. Um, when at first God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. So first two verses, and we've already got a lot to unpack. First, notice God creates the heavens and the earth here. Um, all of the stories we have heard so far suggest that the earth or the heavens like pre-exist all of the major gods, like Gaia, you know, predates Kronos and Zeus and company, um, or Tiamat like is basically just there at the beginning with Apsu. Um, but instead here we have a God who deliberately makes the universe. The universe is not a product of sexuality. It is not a product of like inexplicable forces arising out of chaos. It is made, designed. Um, and this is why we have the theory intelligent design as opposed to any of the other sort of cosmogonical explanations that you'll run into. Um, but the second thing that you should definitely be, be noticing here is that God is associated with the formless void and the darkness covering the face of the deep. The wind of God swept over the face of the waters. This sounds a lot like a tomb um, and his sort of abiding alone with the primeval waters as it is explained by Shu in the Hymn to Life just a moment ago. Um, there's a clear connection here. Um, now, I don't want to get too deep into the whole, like, where does the Bible come from? Because that's a conversation very much not in our mythological explanations. But when you're talking about comparative mythology, this is something you really can't avoid. If I'm going to talk about the Israelites and their Bible, we got to talk about where it came from. Um, and the fact of the matter is, it is very much disputed at this point in time. Um, like, we're going to spend a whole day in a couple weeks talking about the Bible and Christianity and Judaism and exactly how all this works, so I don't want to get, like, too deep into it um, and the theology that's involved. But I do want to stress, like, the possible relationship between Genesis 1 and the other texts that we are reading in this class. Um, now, there are, 
whenever you do any amount of scholarship about the Bible, um, you have to tread very carefully because everybody is really worked up over it. Um, and for fairly good reason. Like, Christianity has been running the show in Europe and, you know, the West for 2,000 years, practically, at this point. Um, 1,600 if we wanted to be a little bit more charitable. Um, it has become the dominant religion and the dominant cultural force for over a millennium. Um, and as a result, there are tons of people who are in, very invested in defending the traditional interpretations of the Bible and the traditional understanding of where this text came from. There are also a ton of people very determined to destroy those presuppositions, to break down the Christian assumptions about the text and to sort of reject um, and sort of question and criticize the assumptions that have been in place for many of those years. Um, and the crucial one that we're dealing with here is how old is Genesis 1? Um, because the two traditions vary wildly on this point. Um, like if you talk to traditional Christian scholars who are interested in defending the authority of the text and sort of its preeminence among like religious texts and mythological texts, they will probably tell you that Genesis was originally written by Moses. Um, Moses being the prophet who led the Israelites out of Egypt, as we will read rather later in the class. Um, if Moses, in fact, wrote this text, then that probably means that we're looking at a text that was, at the very least, like 3,500 years old. Um, we're talking about, like, B.C. 1500, although nobody has been able to fix the time of the Exodus because it doesn't seem to line up with Egyptian historical records, so we really can't pin it down. Um, so we don't know exactly when it happened, but it was supposedly very, very ancient. In which case, Genesis 1 could very well be every bit as old as the Enuma Elish, as the Egyptian coffin texts, um, as any of the other myths that we've read in this class. But the reigning consensus among scholars these days, and by that I mean sort of like the scholarly establishment, academics, university professors, like you're the people who you are learning from here, um, they will typically emphasize that Genesis, as well as the rest of the Old Testament and the Torah especially, was contributed by a bunch of different writers. Um, Genesis in particular, most uh, scholars of the Bible who do not have a vested interest in protecting Christian tradition um, will argue that it was probably written not by one person, like Moses, but rather by a bunch of different people who have been successively redacting and editing the text over multiple revisions and over what is probably a long period of time. In which case, this story may be as recent as five to 600 BCE, which would mean that it is very derivative of the Egyptian uh, myths and much younger than Hesiod's Theogony and the Enuma Elish and so on and so forth. Um, the basic theory here, the basic question that we're dealing with is, did the Egyptians steal from the Jews, which is how the Christians will t and Jews will typically argue, or are the Jews and Christians ripping off the Egyptians and the Babylonians, which is how most of the atheist and non-Christian scholars are going to argue. 
So let me just put that as a caveat, first off and foremost. I am not equipped to weigh in on this one. I have my own sort of biases and assumptions, which will definitely come up later on in the class. Um, but the emphasis that I want to place on place here is that there is almost certainly a connection. Um, like there's some very obvious parallels between especially the story of Shu and the sort of Egyptian tradition surrounding their gods. Um, whether that's exactly what the cause and effect is on this one, I don't know. Um, I have no idea. Like, even in the Christian community, there's a lot of division about exactly what Genesis 1 actually is. Um, most assume, just because of the style, that Moses is himself getting this text from an oral tradition or like a poetic uh, tradition that predates him probably by at least a couple hundred years in the same way that all of these written texts probably work off of a tradition that is a few hundred years old. Um, so we have really no idea. Um, and I also want to stress, because this is going to be very relevant momentarily, the different Christians interpret this passage very differently. Um, you will have Christians who absolutely insist, you know, the world was created in seven days, seven literal 24-hour periods. Um, and in that 24, in those 24-hour periods, like, there is no room for, you know, the forces of evolution or Darwinism or anything like that. But there are also a ton of Christians who think that this is meant to be allegorical. Um, that this whole Genesis 1 thing is not a hard, fast description of a literal 24-hour, you know, day followed by another 24-hour day until a whole week has passed. Um, many ascribe to the theory that each of the days is meant to be, like, an allegory for a whole, like, geological era or something comparable. Um, like, literally billions of years could have transpired in the action that we are reading in Genesis 1. Um, like, there are multiple different theories, and if you were curious about them, by all means ask me about them, because, like, this is one of my specialties, and I will absolutely tell you everything that I know about, like, the Christian tradition and exactly how this passage has been interpreted over the last couple thousand years. Um, suffice it to say that, like, this is a really contentious passage for a lot of different reasons, um, and we will have to sort of acknowledge that as we go through it. Um, but as much as this is all important and is also important for the business of comparative myth, our focus, or at least what I want our focus to be, is on the distinctions culturally. So for our purposes, never mind how old the text is, never mind how, you know, what, who's cribbing off of who, let's instead focus on what makes this text different from the Egyptians and from the Babylonians and from the Greeks. Um, and the first and most obvious thing is, as I emphasize, the fact that God creates the universe. This is not a product of sexuality. This is not a product of just like su surprise, here it is, spontaneous generation, but design. This God makes stuff. And this is a fairly new idea, even if we do attribute it to, you know, 500 or a late date of composition. Um, but notice the other emphases of the text. So if we look at verse 3, it says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God said that the, saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. 
God called this dome sky, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. Notice the emphasis here. Like, even in just the first two days, you can see a lot of patterns emerging through this text. First off, God speaks stuff into existence. Like, God says, let there be light, and there's light. God says, let the waters be gathered together, and they are. Um, God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures, and bam, there are living creatures. God says, let us make humankind, and it's done. Like, this is the way that the universe works. God commands and the universe responds. God is not just an intelligent designer, he is also an authority in a capital A sense. Like, he says, move, and trees and continents and oceans and the heavens itself will move. Um, he commands and everything in the universe obeys. Um, but the other thing that is very clearly stressed here is the organization. Um, God separates the light from the darkness. God separates the waters from the waters. Um, the waters of the sky under from the waters of the, like, ocean. Um, this whole business is basically organization. Um, like, don't get me wrong, there is... It is sort of ambiguous exactly how this goes down. Like in verse 2, we get this, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. You could definitely interpret this to mean, you know, there was nothing there and God like spoke it into existence, created ex nihilo from nothing. Like first there was nothing and then God said be and there was. Um, you can also understand this in terms of like God took this formless matter, this something that was undifferentiated and unclear, and started giving it order. Um, suddenly the light is separated from the darkness. The sea is separated from the sky. The land is separated from the ocean. Um, in one sense it's from nothing. In another sense it is taking the stuff that already exists and building new patterns out of it. And both traditions are important to Christianity. Like, the emphasis that most Christian theologians sort of place on this is that God's first creative action is ex nihilo, from nothing. Like when God says, let there be light and there's stuff now, that's the indication of creating from nothing. And that's an entirely different act from gathering stuff together and reorganizing and sort of like making patterns out of the universe. But both are important. Um, both are very prevalent here. God is an organizer. He separates stuff. He files everything in its appropriate place. Um, and this is repeatedly emphasized of God throughout this text and elsewhere. But the last thing I want to emphasize, because it is in literally every verse... Un, for at least all of this text and we will see where it breaks down is that God emphasizes that all of this is good God saw that the light was good God saw that it was good when he gathers the waters together on day three he says or on day four he puts the lights in the sky and he, we have like the sun and stars and the moon now um, and God saw that it was good when on day five he says let's have living creatures he says god saw that it was good um over and over again the pattern that we're seeing in this text is god speaks something into being or commands that it be done it is done and then god acknowledges that it was good and it was evening and morning the first the second the third the fourth and so on day overwhelmingly the 
the author of this text is telling us God makes stuff, God organizes stuff, and God acknowledges the goodness of stuff. God is a perfectionist. Um, this is not a haphazard creation by an indifferent God. This is not like stuff just coming to be out of chaos and, for and formless void. Nor is this a tomb just sort of like, oops, I made a universe. Um, no, this is very deliberate, very calculated, very careful, um, very meticulous. And the product is always good. Um, this is the work of a good God making a good universe. Which means, unlike many of the texts that we're going to encounter here, the universe itself is normative. Um, like, the universe of the Greeks is indifferent to them. It doesn't give a shit about them. Like, bad things will happen to them and good things will happen to them. Really, who knows which is which. Like, the universe is a callous, uncaring place ruled by gods who have only a little bit of interest in human beings. By contrast, this is the work of a god who is making sure that every tiny little component of the universe works perfectly with all of the rest of those components. Um, this is a carefully designed machine, not an indifferently created mass of accidents and chaos. Um, now, the last component that I definitely want to focus on, like here in Genesis 1, is here when he creates humans. Um, we're going to focus a lot more on like the creation of humans and human myths in our next lecture, in our next discussion. Um, but I do want to stress sort of how they work into the whole Genesis 1 plan. So you'll look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now, first off, notice this emphasis. Humans are made in God's image. Plenty of ink has been spilled as far as how exactly that works. Like, what is the image of God that is passed on to human beings? Um, many theologians have argued that it is rationality, like God, like humans, is rational. Um, we have seen in Tolkien's argument that humans are creative, like God. Um, it has also been said that, like, God legitimately looks like a human being, like he is upright and stands on two legs and so on and so forth, although, you know, different, again, different people will argue against this. Um, it is certainly ambiguous what exactly is the thing that God passed to human beings. Um, now, the other important sort of detail here is the dominion. Um, when God creates human beings, he, like God, gives them rulership, um, authority. 
and again, Tolkien emphasized this, emphasized this in, as well in the Mythopoeia as sort of like having to do with, you know, the will to create and the will, the will to sort of like reorganize the universe into patterns and, you know, everything that we're seeing here in Genesis 1. Um, but this is also sort of like, this is the justification theologically for uh, generations of humans basically doing whatever they want to the world. Um, like as much as you know this is a very crappy way to interpret this text there are christians out there who are like i don't give a shit about climate change because god gave me dominion of the universe and i do what i want with it um and this is definitely not what the bible has in mind um humans are supposed to be stewards like god has authority over the universe insofar as he can say like let there be a tree and a tree shows up or, you know, let the waters gather into one place. And they do like the universe obeys his command. Humans have authority in a similar way, but not obviously the same way. Like I cannot tell my apartment to, you know, slide off the face of my apartment complex. And it just does it because like I have authority over bricks um, or, you know, any of the materials made here. Theoretically, God could. Um, all he would have to do is say, like, you, get out of my way, and the entire block would, like, move over. Um, me, I do not have that power. But I kind of do. Like, we human beings, if we decide, you know, we need to knock down this building to make room for a road, like, we do that. Um, we govern the universe because we, like, have rationality. We can, through science and through our inventiveness, control things. And this is, according to Genesis 1, design. Like, this is part of the plan. This is part of what makes the universe good. Um, and you'll notice in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. He is happy with creation. Um, everything is good as he intended it. It works together. It is exactly what he envisioned. All is well. Um, and even more than just like, this is good in the sense that it abides to God's plan. Like it is good in and of itself. Um, like I said, the universe has a normative value. This is a good world that we live in, according to Genesis 1, which is very different from all of the other explanations of the world that we've seen so far. Like even Plato, as close as Plato gets to this model in the Timaeus, he doesn't go this far. Um, there are problems in the universe, Plato acknowledges. At the very least, there is a sort of indifferent value to it. It is the exact value of God sort of put onto the world. Um, but here, it is good. Like the author emphasizes this. It is good. Over and over and over, it, it is emphasized. This is good. You know, the universe came from nothing, which was nothing. Now we have light and it's good. Now we have continents, and it's good. Now we have the sun and the stars, and it's good. Now we have the beasts of the air and the sea, and it is good. And now we have human beings, and they are good too. But, of course, this is going to change, as we'll talk about in our next lecture. Um, the last, last point that I do want to talk about is this little chunk of Genesis 2 that we see. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. This is the basis for the Sabbath law in Jewish culture. On the seventh day, everyone rests, because God rested on the seventh day. 
and God keeps it holy as a result. This is a holy day of rest. This is the reasoning behind why Jews will not work on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. Um, the emphasis here is very much that God is taking a break. And as much as like all of the cultures that we've talked about to this point, like Hesiod and the Greeks, the Babylonians and the Enuma Elish, and in the Theogony of Danu, like they're all emphasizing these sort of New Year traditions. Like we're going to recognize every year that this is the succession that brought us about, and we're going to hallow it, and we're going to reenact it, and we're going to like recite these myths and, and acknowledge the created order in order to guarantee that it's going to keep on going. This is a weekly thing for the Jews. The Sabbath the once a week resting day is itself designed to be a constant reminder of the universe's goodness, of its creation. God does not want you to observe his, you know, goodness and the created order by like celebrating and reenacting stuff. He wants you to celebrate the goodness and the created order by taking a break every seven days. Um, and this is also going to tie in deeply to other Christian and Jewish themes, though we'll talk about that much later in the class. Um, I know that, like, we're not even scratching the surface here. Like, there is so much else to talk about with Genesis 1, and, you know, like, obviously it has a huge influence on our culture now. And it's probably, like, one of the most potent and powerful myths, uh, one of the most obvious myths in our present culture. Um, like to the point that, you know, I'm sure that just the fact that I've been calling it a myth this whole time is sort of offensive to some people because, you know, like we talked about in class and like we've talked about in earlier lectures, you know, myths are usually associated with lies. Um, but many people still hold that Genesis one is capital T true, um, that it is absolutely a, as true as any scientific fact ever devised, um, so I do not want to sort of like suggest that that is not true. Um, again, you'll remember my definition of myth has always been independent of its truth or falsity. Like I am not like myths can be true and myths can be false. It doesn't matter. Um, in some sense, all myths are true, not because of whether they communicate facts or fictions, but because they communicate something deeper than fact and fiction, something very valuable to the human experience. Um, so I do not mean any disrespect to Genesis 1 when I call it a myth, and when I compare it to all of these other myths that we're studying in this class. If anything, quite the opposite. Um, what I want to emphasize for our purposes and for this class is that this is a very different tradition, a very different culture, and that this culture is going to look at the world very differently as a result. The Greeks see the universe as scary and dangerous. Um, the Jews see the universe as good on a just profound and deep level. Um, the Greeks see the universe as being chaotic and disorganized, being the product of gods fighting with each other all the time. But for the Jews, the universe is one coherent, consistent, good thing that admittedly has been corrupted, as we will talk about when we talk about Genesis 3 in the next lecture. Um, this is what I mean when I am stressing the comparative mythology. Like, I cannot stress enough the distinction between these two cultures and the way that they view the world. Um, I will be going back to this well pretty frequently too. Like we will keep talking about the Israelites and the Jews in contrast with the Greeks because their attitudes are so opposed to one another. 
um, because their take on God is so radically different. And as a result, their culture and their understanding of the universe is radically different. Um, this is what I mean when I say that myths inform the way that we see the world. For the Greeks, the universe is something to be overcome, to be beaten into submission, um, if it can even be done. Like, more often than not, it beats you into submission. For the Jews, the universe is something to be cultivated, something that has gotten out of control because of our mistakes, but not because God is somehow, you know, alien or competitive or angry at us. The God of the Israelites does punish but only justly. The God of the Israelites is relentlessly good. Now, with that in mind, I do want to draw a parallel to Plato's Demiurge um, and the, the passage from the Timaeus that we read for today. Um, because there are a lot of similarities between the God of the Israelites and the God as Plato understands him. Um, but notice, too, that like this is something that we should have been able to anticipate just from reading The Republic earlier on in the semester. Um, Plato emphasized, you know, we shouldn't listen to Homer and Hesiod because they paint the gods as being evil or bitter or petty. Um, by contrast, when Plato talks about the Demiurge, the Demiurge is, like God, good. Like, unquestioningly, across the board, always good. Um, and he communicates that goodness to the universe that the Demiurge makes um, by making the universe, by giving the universe intellect or soul and human beings, he basically guarantees that the universe will have the same goodness that the Demiurge, the maker God, has. But the other obvious comparison here is like the Israelites, Plato sees God as making the universe. Um, in Hesiod, we have gods, you know, like basically you know, having sex and making the universe, fucking the universe into being, so to speak, if you'll forgive the vulgarity. Um, but for the Israelites, it's all about making the universe. It is intelligence that produces the universe, not procreation. Um, and for Plato, it's the same. Like, God makes the universe. The Demiurge creates it. The Demiurge designs it. Um, and like the Israelites' story, um, Plato is emphasizing the orderliness of this universe. Um, he emphasizes that like it's made out of the four basic elements, fire, air, water, and earth. And that initially it was made out of fire and earth because everything that has to be seen and touched has to be made out of fire and earth, but water and air were made as intermediaries between the two. Um, he emphasizes the organization of the universe, that there's like the body, which is matter, and the soul, which animates it, and then the intellect, which only is possessed by human beings. Um, he emphasizes, too, that it is all one thing. Like, the universe, as Plato describes it, is one entity, the all. And the all is sort of populated by all of these different elements and all of these different creations and all of these different beings and the motions and so on and so forth, all of which are very organized and very beautiful and very good. But nonetheless, it's all one thing you place the soul in the middle of the all. He founded it as a circle turning in a circle, one single solitary heaven. As much as Plato is sort of a monotheist in the same way as the Israelites are, his vision of the universe is very different. Um, because where the Israelites see the universe as a created thing, a secondary thing, something that God made separate from himself, 
for Plato, God and the universe are kind of all one entity. There is something way closer to pantheism or panentheism than there is in the monotheistic version of um, the world suggested by the Israelites. Like almost even monism, um, where, you know, we are God. The one all is God. And honestly, like Neoplatonists are going to run with this idea and it's going to get very, very close to that indeed. Um, but Plato is suggesting that like the soul of the universe is something that God, the Demiurge, put into the universe and we all experience it. Um, but as fascinating as this idea is, and as much as I'd love to sit around and talk about Plato all day, we are running out of time. And I, what I really want to sort of draw attention to, what I really want to drive home and why I insist on you reading a, just a little bit of the Timaeus is because Plato was a Greek. Like, Plato is, knows the stories of Hesiod. Plato has heard them before. In some sense, he believes them, kind of. But Plato is basically able and willing to write his own myth of the universe in direct contrast with the Greek culture. Um, and I emphasized this when we talked about Plato earlier, but Plato feels comfortable modifying the Greek mythological traditions. Like as much as these were religious things, like as much as the Greeks believed that if you did not, you know, follow the hymn of Demeter, if you did not reenact the various myths, the world might like literally fall to ashes around us. They also felt comfortable recreating myths according to their new and changing understanding of the universe. Um, Plato's Timaeus will pretty quickly be regarded as true amongst a pretty sizable portion of the Greek public. Um, this is the story that is going to endure. And like 500 years after Plato will write this, his understanding of the universe will actually dominate over um, the pagan understanding of Hesiod. Like, it's a radical transformation. Um, and it's not necessarily in conflict with one another. Um, the fact that there are multiple explanations for how the universe came to be, Plato saying that God made it and the um, gods having, you know, fought their way to a standstill, both of these work. In a sense, Plato's even suggesting that the Demiurge may have made the gods. Um, that like underlying the story of Hesiod's theogony with like chaos and then Gaia and then Kronos and then Zeus, um, Plato could very well be suggesting that the Demiurge made a universe where that took place, that the Demiurge is greater even than the gods. Um, and a lot of Greeks would be okay with this. Um, now you'll notice that the other sort of wild reinterpretation of the Greek myths can be found in Philon of Byblos that passage from the Phoenician history. Um, now, this one is especially interesting because it places all of the gods that we saw in the Theogony and even their succession um, from Kronos to Zeus and all of the minor god or the other gods that we talked about in the Greek pantheon, it makes them out to be just like regular dudes. Um, Phylon emphasizes that, you know, they're was a creation with like very little explanation. It's just, you know, there was wind and there was mud and, and then stuff. Um, but he emphasizes that all of the gods are themselves just people. And that there's the story that Hesiod presents is sort of a confusion um, that all of them were apparently living at the same time. For Phylon, like Hephaestus is older than Zeus. 
Um, Hephaestus gave birth to like Hermes, or is the progenitor of Hermes, and then Hermes is the progenitor of Zeus, and then like the gods are have all their roles in different places. Um, so there is in fact you know overthrows and there's drama in the same way that we talk about Uranus and Kronos and the Theogony of Hesiod. But for Phylon, this is all successive, not simultaneous. There wasn't a time when there were like all twelve of the Greek gods. Rather, the Greek gods existed as human beings at certain points during the succession um, and it is a result of our confusion that we put them all together and what's really nuts is that it is entirely possible that Philon's account of the Phoenician understanding of the theogony is actually older than Hesiod's um, like you'll notice that Philon is just sort of recording what he's hearing from other traditions um, but more importantly, he stresses that the tradition is a thousand years old at the point that Philon is writing, which would put it older than Hesiod. Um, so it's possible that Hesiod is the bastardization and the whole Greek tradition that we understand with all of its celebrated gods and its pantheon and all these gods hanging out in Olympus together is actually a modification of a more Dunu-esque theogony where there was a clear succession one god to another god to another god to another god all mixed up and their priorities all like sort of confused um suffice it to say that it isn't clear like we there is no one story that is authoritative in greek myth um, especially when it gets into its roots like the theogony um, stories will vary Greeks will disagree, not just Plato with, you know, the followers of Hesiod, but even other pagan Greeks who believe roughly in the mythological tradition will disagree over, like, who came first or how exactly the succession took place or all of this stuff. Um, it is not authoritative in the sense that the Christian text is authoritative, in the sense that, like, if you gainsay what Christians have to say in the Bible, then you are not part of the religion. Um, the lines are way fuzzier. The texts are much more malleable here. Um, now the last one I do sort of want to just like touch on, because we obviously do not have very much time left, is the passage from uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses. Now Ovid is a Roman writer. He is writing roughly about like 0 CE slash BCE. Um, he is roughly contemporaneous with Christ. He is writing at the same time as like Emperor Augustus um, is a big deal. Um, now, this emphasis here, like once again, Ovid will largely follow the Greeks. Like the Metamorphoses, we're going to read a chunk of it much later in this class. Um, and the Metamorphoses are very much just a retelling of a lot of Greek and Roman myths in poetry and with Ovid's own spin on them. Um, but what I want to stress about this little passage is that Ovid basically like fits all of the traditions that he is familiar with together. Um, you can see bits of Plato and Aristotle in this first several passages where we're talking about like the four elements and how fire rises to the top and earth drops to the bottom. Um, you can see the sort of orderliness, how nature is sort of the divisor of the universe. Um, so, you know, if you look at that second paragraph, before the sea was and the lands and the sky that hangs over all, the face of nature showed a like in her whole round, which state 
have men called chaos, a rough, unordered mass of things, nothing at all save lifeless bulk and warring seeds of ill-matched elements heaped in one. Um, and yet it will be God or kindlier nature who composed this strife, for he rent asunder land from sky and sea from land and separated the ethereal heavens from the dense atmosphere. Notice, once again, we have everything started from chaos, but now we have nature's guiding hand, perhaps some, you know, top-ranking one god who runs this show, who guides the sort of ordering of the universe, even if it's not as strictly designed as we see in Plato's Timaeus or in the Israelite Bible. Um, there is organization here, and this organization will bring about the gods. In short, Ovid is synthesizing these traditions, both the sort of God created the universe tradition of Plato and the everything came to be out of chaos tradition of Hesiod. He sees that they are compatible and that's how a lot of pagans are going to understand it going forward. Plato is not at odds with Hesiod. Plato is compatible with Hesiod. All right. That's, I realize, a lot. Like, we barely even scratched the surface of, like, half of what these myths have to say, and obviously, like, we could spend an entire semester on Genesis 1 alone if we really wanted to, as well as, like, what its interpretations can be. But I hope that this gave you a good sense of what I mean when I say comparative myth. I hope this really gives you a good sense of how these different cultures sort of, like, bounce off of one another and have different priorities as a result of the myths that they tell. Because um, that's the goal here. Like, we definitely needed to get the whole, you know, how do the gods work in Greece out of the way first, because they're going to be the ones that we talk about all the time in this class, um, and we need to get the content down first. But this is what I want to stress going forward in this class. Look at these myths from this comparative perspective, from this sort of value and culture perspective. What do the details emphasize about each culture? What does it mean for one culture to say that Gaia is, you know, misunderstood and wrong versus another culture saying that she is treacherous and potentially destructive? What does it mean when one culture says that, like, the universe just sprang into being from chaos versus the culture saying that it is the product of a very orderly and very good God? Um, what will that mean for those cultures? How will it shape the way that they see the world and how they teach their children and how they sort of learn and understand everything around them? Um, so keep that in mind. For next class, we're going to do a little bit more scattershot reading. Um, we're going to read from a variety of traditions, primarily the Greeks and um, the Israelites. We're going to talk about humans. Where do humans come from, specifically in Hesiod's Theogony and his works and days? What exactly is the trouble with humans, um, specifically in the story of Prometheus, and as well as the uh, Israelite story of the fall in Genesis 2 and 3? Um, and then what is the punishment to humans, specifically the flood, which weirdly appears in like virtually all mythic traditions and is wildly well attested for something that seems scientifically like impossible and unprovable. Um, so read those passages for next time and we will talk about human beings and their rise and fall in our next class.